welcome to a special edition of the Roadmap from Auto Finance News. Since 1996, the nation's leading newsletter on automotive lending and leasing. I am Riley Wolfbauer, and I am joined by special guests, member Aaron Kuhopt and associate Paul Lysobi from law firm McGlinchey to discuss financial institution data privacy compliance at the federal and state levels. At the federal level, the FTC amended the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act in January to update rules regarding safeguarding customer information. At the state level, laws vary from state to state and often fill the gaps that federal laws do not cover. Let's start with getting to know each of you a bit more. Aaron, would you like to start? Yeah, my name is Aaron Coop. I'm a member at McGlinchey's Cleveland office, uh, at part of our consumer regulatory compliance team. Uh, I do a lot of work in the privacy space. I uh, do a lot of work with federal regulatory requirements for uh, financial institutions, banks, non-financial institutions, fintechs, uh, the whole sort of range of financial institutions and their partners and service providers. Um, and Paul is an associate in their Cleveland office, and I'll let him say a little bit about him. Awesome. Okay. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah. So I'm an associate here in the Cleveland office as well, here with Aaron. Um, I also practice primarily in the consumer financial regulatory space. And part of that, I um, practice in data privacy laws as well with Aaron. And I also hold the certified information privacy professional certification as well. So that's been helped to get a good framework of state and federal privacy laws. Great. So thank you both for joining us today. Uh, let's dive into data privacy. Um, to set the stage, can you give us a general update on private law and what lenders need to consider when they are building out their data privacy compliance programs? Yeah, I mean, I think privacy today is a major issue. It has been for a long time, but with the proliferation of technology and the different, you know, we all know how much data is collected on us every day uh, by a variety of our interactions with websites, with our cell phones, with apps, with all of this other things. And there have been a lot of significant data breaches over the last couple of years. And so, you know, we've seen a, a strong movement towards strengthening some privacy laws in the U.S., uh, as you indicated, both in the federal and the state side. And, you know, what we're going to talk about today is that it's both, right? We're, we're talking about the security of information. And that's where a lot of what I'm going to focus on today is, you know, what are your requirements to secure and, and keep safe the information that's in your possession? And then Paul's going to talk a little bit more about on the state level, the data usage, data sharing. Once you have data, what is it that you're allowed to do with it? Uh, how do you, how do you, um, you know, limitations on sharing and, and use? So, and, and both of us, are, are doing that even though we could both talk about the either, right? Federal law also has protections on, you know, the Gramley-Bliley Act protects information use and how it's done. The Fair Credit Reporting Act protects use. Uh, and there are state laws that have information security requirements. So, you know, really, if you're operating in this space, either as a financial institution or as a service provider to a financial institution, you kind of have to be aware of not only federal and state law, but also sort of the differences between what I need to do and, and am I governed by laws that, you know, deal primarily with how to keep the information safe. Um, and then also now that I've kept it safe, 
what can I do with that data? How can I use that? And so, you know, I think it's what, what can be complicated in the privacy space is that you are talking about both a federal and a state overlay. And then you're also talking about multiple prudential regulators that have slight variations in, in what they want to see. And then you're always sort of differentiating between information security programs uh, and then what you can do with that data. So there's just, there's so much and there are so many touch points that it can be really easy to run afoul of them or inadvertently, you know, be f uber focused on one area and, and maybe fall short in another. Okay, so let's get into the FTC and the amendments to the safeguard rule. Um, who does the safeguards rule apply to? And also, what are these amendments that were made? Yeah, so to bring it up a little bit, just, you know, one level, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, part of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act requires uh, all financial institutions to have a information security program. Uh, and then what they do is they essentially say that each prudential regulator has the ability to develop rules that enact and that that requirement to have an information security program. And so, you know, if you're an FDIC insured entity, the FDIC has an information security program, OCC has an OCC uh, information security program. Uh, and then you have the FTC, uh, which is essentially going to have jurisdiction over non-bank lenders, uh, service providers, brokers. Um, that's generally who the FTC is going to have jurisdiction over. And the FTC updated their safeguard rules, which is their sort of version of, of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act requirement to have an information security program. Um, you know, and I, I think one thing that we have clients struggle with all the time is just that core definition, right? A, a Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act financial institution, and what does that mean? Because it's easy to think about a financial institution the way common sense dictates, right? A bank, um, a credit union, whatever. Um, but really, a financial institution is much broader than that. And and Paul's going to touch that a, a little bit more on the privacy side as well. But, you know, you're really looking at whether or not you're offering a financial product or a service in some manner um, or whether you're a service provider. And so you're sort of looking at the two different areas of that to see where it's going to hit. So from the, from the FTC's perspective, uh, again, really talking about sort of non-bank participants, um, auto finance companies potentially could fall within the FTC's jurisdiction. Um, a, a broker or a servicer and a platform in the auto finance area could fall into the FTC's jurisdiction. What they did is they instituted this new rule that really just sort of enhanced what they want to see in an information security program. Um, they also slightly modified the definition of a financial institution to include um, really any entity similar to the GLBA, you know, any entity that does uh, offer a financial product or service to a consumer or is incident to a financial product or a service. And so they introduced this new concept of a finder, which is essentially an entity that connects two people together. So uh, you might not have an ongoing customer continuing relationship with this consumer, but you've connected this consumer with a financial institution or with, with another party. So they did expand the definition of financial institution a little bit to include these finders as the rule defines them. Uh, and then if you are governed 
the information security program now has to be built out to include a lot of different things. Um, and, and I should back up to say that this, this amendment went into effect in December of last year, but the meat of the requirements had a 12 month delayed implementation. So a lot of the actual work that needs to be done to enhance the program itself, most of that is going to go into effect in December of this year. So, you know, uh, I guess three or four months from now. Um, those requirements include identifying a qualified individual to run your information security program. The rule does not require any level of education. Um, what it really says is that the qualified individual has to have a working knowledge and, and understand the bank's information or the financial institutions. Uh, uh, see, I made, I made the mistake myself to immediately connect financial institution to a bank, but how a financial institution is going to operate. So that qualified individual needs to know enough about the program to properly run it, implement it, oversee it, do reporting to the board, uh, but it doesn't require a certain certification like you know, Paul indicated that he has a CIPP. That's not a requirement to be a, a qualified individual. The rule even allows you to use a third party to be the qualified individual for you, as long as you have certain oversight and, and you really are intimately involved with that third party acting in that role. But you can even make somebody else outside of your institution a qualified individual. In addition to that, there's a lot, and you'll see sort of a theme as, as we go through this a little bit, where risk assessment, if you take nothing else out of this, risk assessments are dramatically important. Um, all of the different regulators that have come out with anything in the past year or two, the focus is on risk assessments, making sure that you have a comprehensive risk assessment. It identifies security risks. It identifies controls that you might have in place for those security risks that you've identified um, and that you put any mitigating controls that you have in place to try and reduce that risk. Uh, and that really is designed to help you with your executives and understanding exactly where resources need to go, uh, where your vulnerabilities are so that you can you know, patch those up and, and, and keep a nice secure system. But that risk assessment shouldn't be static. That risk assessment should be something that lives and breathes and changes as you implement new products, new technology, new controls that should be updated. Um, so, you know, enhanced risk assessment, uh, vulnerability tests should be done. Penetration tests are required under this new information security program. Uh, annual reporting requirements up to the board so that the board understands where these risks are and understands what they need to do with it. So really just you know, it enhanced this idea of what a comprehensive information security program is with this really strong focus on identify where you have these risks, run vulnerability tests, understand all of these factors, implement multi-factor authentication, make it difficult for someone that's not Paul to access Paul's account. And that's really the, the crux of all of this, right? How are you going to keep this information safe? And how does your institution know you are or you're not? Um, and so most of that, you know, the, the enhancements of the risk assessment, the identification of a qualified individual, uh, that all goes into effect in, in December of this year. Okay, great. So you mentioned auto earlier. Um, how do these amendments um, apply to auto lenders? So what do auto lenders have to worry about with this? 
So to the extent, you know, for purposes of the FTC's rule, uh, if you are an auto finance company that is, uh, you know, not, not a bank, not governed by a prudential regulator like the FDIC or the OCC, um, you know, the, the FTC is generally going to have jurisdiction over you. Uh, and, and that is going to be a, a large number and, and not just auto finance companies that might fall under the FTC jurisdiction. It could be a servicer or a broker that, that is also a non-bank and falls under the FTC's jurisdiction. So really understanding, you know, one of the most important aspects of the information security, while there are general things and themes that are going to be similar, really understanding who your prudential regulator is and what their requirements are is fundamentally important uh, because they do vary slightly um, between each other as far as what their expectations are for a program. So for this new safeguard rule, you're really looking, generally speaking, um, anybody under the FTC's jurisdiction is probably going to bring in, you know, your non-bank auto finance lenders. Okay. Um, back in January, when the changes to the GLBA were first announced, there was an expectation that other regulatory bodies would follow the FTC's lead, including Office of the uh, Controller of the Currency, the Federal Deposit and Insurance Commission, and the National Credit Union Administration. Have any of these organizations followed suit with, simu with similar regulations, or have you guys seen anything that looks like they will in the future? So there's sort of been a lot, right? So even going back before that, in August of last year, uh, the FFIEC, which is sort of a conglomeration of federal regulatory bodies, it includes the FTC, F, sorry, FDIC, CFPB, OCC, NCUA, right? Like they put out guidance uh, last summer that was really all about authentication and access to financial service systems. Um, what was interesting about that guidance is that it extended not only to how a consumer interacts with a digital banking service that you might be offering, but it also talked about internal controls. So, you know, controlling the access of your board members, your employees, your, you know, internal control systems as far as what employees and internal people are able to do with system access and how that's going to work. Um a lot of the same themes. Risk assessment is fundamentally important under that guidance as well. Your risk assessment should capture those kind of things uh, and reporting. So a lot of what you see in the FTC rule was was also there in talking about how to sort of, with a specific focus on access and access to systems. Uh, and then just last week, uh, this is pretty timely as far as our taping because this was not done on purpose. Uh, but just last week, the CFPB issued guidance, which essentially said that a lax information security program could also rise to the level of a unfair uh, trade practice under the uh, their UDAP authority. So a violation of the Consumer Financial Protection Act by basically, you know, uh, the, 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 the basic implication of the guidance is that if you have a lax information security system, it potentially meets the, the prongs of an unfair act, which is also a violation of the CFPA. And that gives the CFPB authority and enforcement abilities to not only say that you have a lax program under whatever your prudential regulators requirements are, but that you potentially also have a, a UDAP violation on your hands. And so, you know, I think 
and and once Paul talks about this, I think we'll get an even bigger picture. Doesn't really matter where you are in in the universe of entities. There is something out there right now that is going to cover you, uh, and and that's going to require an information security program, it, especially if you're anywhere touching consumer finance and, and touching financial systems. There is information security programs, and there are requirements you should be aware of, because from every direction we're sort of seeing an emphasis on the security of the information, uh, limiting access, and and having strong risk assessments and strong programs. Okay, so let's jump over to uh, state data privacy now. Uh, so as mentioned at the top, we know that state laws often cover areas that federal laws may not apply. Um, so Paul, in general, what is happening on a state level and what do financial institutions need to be aware of? Yes, yeah, so at the state level, the general things to be aware of is that states have started to enact their own comprehensive data privacy and data security laws that protect consumers' personal data that a business or entity may obtain about the consumer when they're having these interactions or when the consumer is buying a product from them. So it's just important to um, know what states are enacting these laws and sort of what types of rights they create for consumers and what types of duties and obligations they place on entities that are subject to these laws. As far as financial institutions go though, as we'll sort of, I think we'll discuss later, there's these laws provide broad exemptions. Most of these state privacy laws provide broad exemptions for entities that are financial institutions as defined under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, under the federal privacy sort of framework under that law. So if you are a financial institution that is subject to the GLBA, the good news is that you're going to be exempt generally from these state data privacy laws. So it's really important for um, an entity or business in the realm of a financial institution to really determine whether you are a financial institution or not under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, because if you that is going to depend, um, it's going to inform whether these laws will apply to you as a financial institution. So I think the takeaways from that are there's, from broadly speaking, there's states are enacting these privacy laws that are very general in scope and cover financial and non-financial data, really any personal data about consumers, but there's really aren't financial, they are really exempting financial institutions covered under the GLBA. So those are sort of two takeaways from what's happening at the state level. Okay, so the states that are enacting um, their own laws, how do the laws vary from state to state? Um, for example, Utah and Connecticut enacted their own. What is going on there and how are they similar? Yes, so, so just to go through the list of states that have enacted these types of laws so far, California was the first state and probably the most famous state to enact one of these privacy laws that was back in 2018 with the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA. That was recently amended, well, was amended a couple of years back by a, a ballot proposition in California. So that law is going to be amended by the California Privacy Rights Act, which is going to become effective generally uh, January 1st of 2023. So that's the situation in California. States, four other states have followed suit with similar comprehensive data privacy laws after California. 
beginning with Virginia and Colorado in 2021. And now most recently, as you mentioned, there's Utah and Connecticut that have enacted these consumer privacy laws um, in just this past year. So these laws, none of these state laws in Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia, or Utah are yet in effect, but they will be going into effect over the course of the next year or year and a half. So it's just important to um, really understand what is contained in these laws um, just for planning purposes and for compliance purposes. So some of the general concepts that are found under these laws is they enact or they create certain consumer rights and protections. Um, so for instance, in states like Cal Connecticut and Utah, as well as Virginia and Colorado, all four of those laws are very similar and they create rights such as the right to confirm whether an entity is processing your personal data so consumers can request that and find out whether um, a business covered under the law is has their data. There's also the right to delete personal data under these laws. You can request that a entity delete your personal data if they have it. These laws also create the right to what they call data portability, which is the right to obtain a copy of your data in a readily usable format. The, the business has to give you a copy of what data they have about you. And there's also the right to opt out of data processing from these entities for certain purposes, such as targeted advertising. So I think a general concept and just generally speaking, these data privacy laws in these states are very similar in many ways, such as the rights that are created, um, as well as duties that are created as well for entities subject to these laws. But there are slight nuances, as you mentioned. Utah is probably so far the biggest, it's not really even an outlier because it is still similar to the other states, but Utah just in a couple ways varies such as it removes the right to correct inaccuracies that the other state data privacy laws have generally. So a consumer in Utah couldn't request that a like if there was inaccurate data held by the entity subject to the law, there wouldn't be the specific right to correct inaccuracies, but the other states would. So it's just, there's also, Utah also narrows the right to delete personal data to only the data that the consumer himself or herself has provided to the covered entity. So it's just important to, I guess, generally understand that while these laws are very similar, there's slight state nuances that might cause, um, you know, just cause an entity to be, I guess, sensitive to these different states and to, of course, know what states are enacting these laws and just to be on the lookout for sort of state-specific variations. Okay. So in general, how has the data privacy landscape really evolved in light of the federal and state changes that uh, we've gone over today? I mean, I think you've seen a fundamental shift, right? I mean, I think you've, with, with especially on the state level, so the things that Paul were talking about, where you really see the states getting involved in protecting the, the information of residents of their state, and really starting to talk about you know a couple of terms that Paul talked that Paul was discussing processors and controllers um, in a way that that U.S. federal law really hasn't in the past. Um, and, and like Paul said, it it is geared in large part to try to 
touch on entities that are not financial institutions, sort of a recognition that the federal framework is is fairly strong. And, and so these are designed to kind of capture that gap where, where a federal law doesn't apply. But, you know, things that we didn't talk about that I talked about in the beginning, the states have also started to put in information security laws. So you have biometric laws in certain states where if you're capturing the biometric data of a consumer, there are special obligations and consents that you might need to obtain in order to do that. Uh, and on the federal level, just, you know, I wouldn't say it's a shift as much as I would say it's a doubling down on the the importance of having a strong information security program and a recognition that these data breaches have significant consumer consequences. And so enhancing those programs and making them strong with proper oversight of third parties and these risk assessments are really, really key. Um, and then what happened to the CFPB last week, I think is something that everybody needs to be aware of because you know the CFPB indicating that a, a lax security program is also potentially an unfair act in violation of of UDAP and the consumer uh, protections is major because that is sort of a seismic shift to be able to say that not only do you have this underlying security problem, but you also potentially have this UDAP violation. Gotcha. Okay. So that is all we have time for today. Um, thank you both for joining us to talk about data privacy and what financial institutions must keep in mind at the federal and state levels when it comes to compliance. Um, thank you to our listeners for joining us on the roadmap. Make sure to join us at the Auto Finance Summit at the Win Las Vegas, October 26th through 28th. You can sign up to attend at autofinancesummit.com. We will see you online at autofinancenews.net and here next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.